Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up John's Gospel, chapter 5. Today we will finish up the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. We're just moving right along here. Um, I decided today really just to change things up a little bit. Instead of using the NIV like I normally do, I'm going to use the message. Uh, just, to, amen. just to shake it up a little bit. So if you're at chapter 5, you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles as I begin reading at verse 30. I can't do a solitary thing on my own. I listen, then I decide. You can trust my decisions because I'm not out to get my own way, but only to carry out orders. If I was simply speaking on my own account, it would be an empty, self-serving witness. But an independent witness confirms me, the most reliable witness of all. Furthermore, you all saw and heard John, and he gave expert and reliable testimony about me, didn't he? But my purpose is, excuse me, but my purpose is not to get your vote and not to appeal to mere human testimony. I'm speaking to you this way so that you'll be saved. John was a torch blazing and bright, and you were glad enough to dance for an hour or so in his bright light. But the witness that really confirms me far exceeds John's witness. It's the work the Father gave me to complete. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, sent me. The Father who sent me confirmed me. And you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There is nothing left in your memory of his message because you do not take his message seriously. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you missed the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive me the life you say you want. I'm not interested in crowd approval. And do you know why? Because I know you <laughs> and your crowds. I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. I came with authority of my father, and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self-important, you'd welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all of your time jockeying for position with each other, ranking your rivals and ignoring God? But don't think I'm going to accuse you before my father. Moses, whom you put so much stock in, is your accuser. If you believe, really believe, what Moses said, you'd believe me. He wrote of me. If you don't take what he wrote seriously, how can I expect you to take seriously what I speak? Lord, I pray that you would breathe your breath, your life, on your word today. And Lord, use me uh, to your end to, to share your word with your people in a way that's life-giving for them. Lord, let the end result be this. Make us all to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, pretty intense text. All of that was Jesus. That was all Jesus talking. And 
And I don't know, there weren't too many warm fuzzies in that, that little monologue of Jesus. So to begin with, I think we have to ask a very important question. And we could really miss what's going on here if we don't ask this question. Who's Jesus talking to? In, in his writing, is he, is he speaking to those of us gathered here? Is, this, is he speaking to you and me? Well, maybe, maybe not. But certainly in the context of what the gospel writer John is recording here, um, Jesus, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders who are very upset with him. It would be very easy to misunderstand and misapply Jesus' words if we forget what's going on here. In verses 1 to 15 of, of chapter 5, um, the text tells us that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and that the Jewish leaders were very upset about the fact that this violated their Sabbath laws. Verse 16 adds, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So this conversation that we see right here, this is Jesus' response to, to the persecution that he is experiencing from these Jewish leaders. Verse 18 just adds you know, just how intense this persecution is. It tells us that they're actually trying to kill Jesus. Have you ever been in a public discourse with somebody who was actually persecuting you and whose intent was to see not only your demise, but your actual death. I think, I think we can safely describe the people Jesus is speaking to as enemies. Would that be a, an unfair description? If they're persecuting you and they want to kill you, probably in anybody's book, that's an enemy. They're not your friend. <laughs> they're not on your side. They're not for you. They're fiercely against you. And so since verse 17 in John chapter 5, Jesus has been responding to them. Now, remember, all this began because he healed a guy who'd been sick for 38 years. He'd been, he'd been crippled and lame for 38 years. Jesus heals him. And they want to persecute him, beginning with that, because of the day that he did it. So when, <laughs> when the message says, you can't see the forest for the trees, boy, oh boy, that's pretty accurate. So Jesus is speaking to an uber-religious people, to people who are extremely upset with him, to the point of murder, people who are offended at him, and people who saw Jesus' perspective, Jesus' point of view, Jesus' approach to ministry, they saw him as a threat. He was a, th a threat to their way of life, a serious threat to their way of life. You don't want to kill somebody unless you perceive them to be a significant threat. You have to understand, Jesus was messing with the status quo. He was messing with their way of life. He was absolutely messing with their finely tuned religious institution. And so I think it's important, if we want to understand this monologue, that we have some type of understanding, some grasp of the context in which you know, it's being spoken. So there's, there's a threefold witness. One of the things we could glean out of this text is Jesus is talking about three witnesses of who he is, of who, of what's been said about him. And so, see, in Jesus' day, the self-testimony, if you said something about yourself, it was not reliable in a court of law. But Jesus, is, um, but Jesus has far more than his own testimony 
regarding who he is. He shares about three different witnesses. Verses 30 to 33. You can't do a solitary thing on your own. Listen, I listen, then I decide. You can't trust my decision because I'm not out to get my own way, but only carry out orders. If I was simply speaking on my own account, I would be empty, self-serving witness. But an independent witness confirms me, the most reliable witness of all. Furthermore, you all saw and heard John, and he gave expert and reliable testimony about me, didn't he? So in, in this second half of the, the remaining portion of chapter 5 of John's Gospel, Jesus refers to three different witnesses, and we'll take a look at the three of them. The first is the witness of John the Baptist. The second is the witness of the actual works, the miraculous works that Jesus is doing. And the third is what he, Jesus himself um, defines as the most reliable witness, which is God the Father. And so this concept of witnesses, it's really, Jesus is speaking to them in their language. Deuteronomy 19.15 is where it comes from, where it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is what Jesus is responding. He's talking to these experts in the Jewish law, and he's saying, look, you're not happy with me. I got witnesses. Right? This has been established on the basis of multiple witnesses. Just as Jesus told the Jews, he was God. But his testimony alone wasn't enough. In the following passage, Jesus calls for three absolutely credible witnesses who testify that he's equal to God the Father. But these enemies of Jesus, these persecutors who hate him and want to kill him, they will reject both Jesus' witnesses as well as their testimonies. Let's take a look at these witnesses. The first is John the Baptist. Verses 34 to 35. But my purpose is not to get your vote and not to appeal to human testimony. I'm speaking to you this way so that you will be saved. John was a torch, a blazing and bright. Was a torch, blazing and bright. And you were glad enough to dance for an hour or so in his bright light. So John, we're talking about John the Baptist. He was a bright and blazing torch. A light that the Jewish leaders... Well, they enjoyed or at least entertained for a short time. John was a true and reliable witness. If you remember, when we were back in the first chapter of John's Gospel, we, we talked a bit about this. It's plainly stated in verses 32 to 34 of John chapter 1. It says, Then John gave his what? His testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself... Did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize the water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John, he's a witness. He's testifying to what he has seen and what he's heard. That's what a witness does, right? If you get called into court as a witness, what are they asking you? What did you see, right? What, what do you know about this situation? John, the Baptist, is giving his, he's given his testimony. Nonetheless, these religious leaders have rejected uh, John's testimony regarding the true identity of Jesus. 
The second witness is the, is the witness of the works of Jesus. Verse 36 says, But the witness that really confirms me, far exceeding John's witness, see, Jesus is saying, look, John's a good witness, even more credible than his witness, is the works the Father gave me to do. But the witness that really confirms me far exceeds John's witness. It's the work the Father gave me to complete. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, sent me. So John's a good witness, but Jesus says there's even a better one. The work the Father gave me to complete. Every aspect of the works of Jesus testify to his true identity, to the, to the deity of Jesus. The majority, it's interesting to note, the majority of the miraculous works of Jesus were really simple acts of compassion, acts of mercy. Truly, that's what healing the sick is. Done for simple, needy people. And so, in this, these works bear witness to the heart of God. And though the Jews were looking, they were indeed looking for a miraculous Savior, they weren't expecting it to come this way. They didn't look for one who would express his miraculous power in simple acts of compassion and mercy. They wanted a Messiah who would use miraculous power to, to bring political deliverance to Israel, who would use supernatural powers to annihilate the Romans. They wanted a miraculous Messiah, but they were looking for different miracles. So here, when Jesus comes in compassion and mercy and he's healing the sick, because of preconceived notions, because of the Jewish leader's mindset, they can't see that he actually is the Messiah. Because Jesus' miraculous works didn't fit in with what they thought the Messiah would do, they rejected the witness of Jesus' works. It's astonishing to me. You... It would, it would seem to me that if you, if you would see the miracles that Jesus is performing, healing the sick, that it would at least give you pause. You'd at least say, maybe I have to re-examine how I'm looking at this. But obviously, because these people are described as persecutors who want to kill him, they're, they're not even entertaining that consideration. There's no, there's no thought in their mind that they could possibly be wrong. Remember months ago, uh, maybe a year ago now, I showed a video by Catherine Schultz on, on being wrong. <laughs> right? And she asked the question, what does it feel like to be wrong? And so some people said, well, it, you know, feel foolish, or you feel disappointed or embarrassed. She says, no, that's what it feels like when you know you're wrong. Right? When you've discovered that you're wrong. She says, you know what being wrong feels like? Right. Feels just like being right. Because if you knew you were wrong, you would change your mind. Obviously, these Jewish leaders, are they wrong? They're absolutely wrong. But they think they're so right. Astonishing. See, Jesus didn't do the whole Messiah thing according to the Jewish leaders' expectations. And so they not only rejected the testimony of John the Baptist, they rejected the witness, the testimony of the works of Jesus. And so the third witness that Jesus offers is, is his father. Verses 37 38. The father who sent me confirmed me. And you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There's nothing left in your memory of the message of his message because you do not take his message seriously. Wow. So when 
When was it that God the Father gave testimony about his son? Well, first off, in virtually every work and every word of Jesus, no, no mere man could do the works that Jesus did without God. Matter of fact, we looked at it last week. Jesus said he could do nothing by himself. He could do only what he saw his father doing. So it's not in humanity, in and of itself, to do these miracles. So truly, in every work Jesus did, the father's testifying to the son is. But more specifically, the father did indeed testify to Jesus' sonship. Not only in New Testament prophecy, uh, Old Testament prophecy, but in the New Testament itself, at Jesus' baptism. In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, where it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on, on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. This is the Father giving audible, giving public testimony to the authentic sonship of Jesus' son. This is, this is the third witness. Astonishing. Get it. The, the, the same voice that spoke into creation, the same voice that spoke into existence, everything, out of nothing. The same voice that spoke to the patriarch Adam, go from your country, your people, and your father's household, and to the land I'll show you. That same voice, the same voice that appeared to Isaac, telling him to go to Egypt. Not to go to Egypt, but to live in the land where I tell you to live. That same voice that spoke to the patriarch Jacob, telling him, go back to the land of your fathers and your relatives, and I will be with you. That same voice who spoke to Moses in the burning bush and, and spoke to Moses in the cloud and spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. That same very voice, that voice of God the Father Almighty, is now here speaking both audibly and publicly at Jesus' baptism. He's testifying to the, to the identity of Jesus as his very son. And still, these Jewish leaders missed it. They missed it. In verses 30 to 33, Jesus said, you, let me read that to you again. I'll scroll down here. Yeah, in verse 30 to 33, toward the bottom there, it says, furthermore, this is Jesus speaking to them, you all saw and heard John, and, gave, and he gave expert and reliable testimony about me, didn't he? They saw. They hear. They still don't believe. Even when the voice of God speaks. So we got three witnesses. God the Father, John the Baptist, and the works of Jesus. All rejected. They have eyes, these Jewish leaders, but they can't see. They have ears. But they refuse to hear. Listen to me. Listen to me. Never underestimate. Never underestimate the incredibly deceptive power of a religious spirit to blind us and harden our hearts 
and close our ears. Look at this. They've got Jesus Christ in the flesh, standing before them, doing the very works of God. They got the voice of God speaking that he is the Son of God. They got John the Baptist as a forerunner testifying to the truth. And still, not only do they fail to believe him, but they are so enraged that the one they had been waiting for all their lives, for generations upon generations, their heart is to kill him. Are these people deceived? They are absolutely deceived. And what's deceiving them? It's their mindset. It's their preconceived notions. They thought they had it all figured out. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like a new pastor came to town with some new ideas that shook up the church. This was God. He's the Messiah they've been waiting for. And they want to kill him. Deception is powerful. Religious deception is astonishingly powerful. We'll get an incredible picture of it right here. So Jesus says to them in verses 39 and 40, he says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly but because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. They will not receive the testimony of the Father. Because though they have Bibles in their hands, they don't have God in their hearts. They can't hear God. They can't see God. Do we need any more proof? Do we need any more evidence to prove to us that the written word alone is not enough. I love the scriptures, but guys, listen to me. The Bible by itself is insufficient. It's not enough. If the Bible by itself were enough, Jesus wouldn't have to come. If the Bible by itself were enough, all we would need was the Old Testament. Or we could just be satisfied with the Old and New Testament. These guys had, they had the Old Testament. They had the Bible of their day. Not only did they have it, they studied it fiercely. They were considered in their day the experts in the word. And they still lacked something. The fact that they could respond to Jesus they, the way they did is evidence that they still needed something more. These guys were expert in the written law and still missed the, the, the Messiah that they so diligently studied about in their scrolls. They couldn't see the forest because of their theological trees. We need more than just a word in our hands. We need the spirit in our hearts. Because we're not going to fully understand, we're not going to have accurate comprehension of what's in the word if we don't have the spirit. I heard a gifted man named Larry Randolph, strong prophetic gifting, say, he said, he looked at it this way. It's like the train on the track. He said, the track is the word of God. He said, the train is the spirit of God. He said, if all you have is the track, you're still not going to get anywhere. He says, if all you have is the train and no track, you're going to be stuck. You need the train 
on the track. And for too many, we have lived powerlessly. We've had a track, but we can't get anywhere. Because we don't have a train that can run on it. We, the Word's not enough. I'm not saying we don't need the Word. We absolutely need the Word. I love the Word. But we've got to have the Spirit. It's not optional. That's how these guys operated. Do you see where it got them? It did not get them to a good place. It got them to a horrible place. Somebody said once that if you have the Word alone, you dry up. If you have the Spirit alone, you blow up. If you have the Word and Spirit, you grow up. We need both. We can't do without, without the Spirit. It's essential in the mix. Look, we can know the Bible. Obviously, we can know the Bible and not know God. These, these guys knew the Bible of their day. But they didn't know God. They so much so didn't know God that when he showed up in their midst, they didn't recognize him. It reminds me of a story. My mentor, this really gifted teacher of the word named John Nyan, gifted Episcopal priest, just amazing teacher of the word. He told me this story years ago when he was in seminary. He was going through training, and, and he got into a debate with one of his professors over a particular text. I, I don't remember what part of scripture. But they got it. John was a pretty smart guy. He really knew his stuff, and so they were going back and forth. And, and finally, the professor, exasperated, looked at him and said, Hey, Nyan, I don't believe this stuff. I just teach it. Who? Uh, seminary professors, right? You can know the book. You can know the words on the page. You could quote chapter and verse, but still not know God. So going forward, the scripture begins to speak about an absence of love. and Boy, that's always a red flag. Verses 41 to 44. Jesus says, I'm not interested in crowd approval. And do you know why? Because I know you and your crowds. I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. Ouch, ouch. Man, I never want to hear God say that about me. I came with authority of my father, and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self-important, you would welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all your time jockeying for position with each other and ranking your rivals and ignoring God? It sounds like some pastor conferences I've been to. You know? <laughs> not a pretty picture. They're not willing because they don't have God's love. How sad that Jesus would say to them, God's love is not on your working agenda. They have an agenda. But the love of God's not found anywhere on it. They're too busy jockeying for position, concerned with man's honor, concerned with their position and the opinions of, of men. On this, David Guzik makes this commentary. He says, we see these reasons essentially have to do with the heart, not with the mind. People like this hide behind intellectual excuses, but the bottom line is that they have a heart problem with Jesus, not a head problem. Boy, I found that to be true. For people who, for people who have the word only and not the spirit, they tend to live up here in their head. And the heart is absent from the equation. Don't you know? It's not enough. We have an incredible picture here in Scripture of those type of people and what their end is. It's not pretty. 
Now look, I enjoy study probably more than most. It's good to study the things of God. It is. It's good to study the things of God. But it's vastly better to know God himself. Instead of just being satisfied with study about him, my passionate cry is let's know him. Why settle for knowing about God when you can actually know God? Verse 45 to 47. But don't think I'm going to accuse you before my father Moses, before my father, period, Moses, in whom you put so much stock as your accuser. If you believed, really believed what Moses said, you would believe me. He wrote of me. If you won't take seriously what he wrote, how can I expect you to take seriously what I say? These religious leaders rejected Jesus because they rejected God's word given through the deliverer Moses. So Moses accuses them because Moses wrote about Jesus and they didn't receive the testimony of Moses either. They had the words, but they obviously misinterpreted them. And with that misinterpretation, they made the poor application. Look, we can have accurate revelation. The, mo the, the words that Moses wrote, he got from God. That was clear and accurate revelation, right? Moses got good revelation. But that revelation was misinterpreted, and poor application was making a, as a result. How do we know this? Well, look what happened. If they had interpreted it correctly, if they had applied it correctly, they would have recognized Jesus when he came. But they didn't. Jesus said, said of Moses that he wrote of me. So much so that Jesus actually taught a Bible study on him. He did. He really did. After the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, a hidden Jesus is speaking to two of his disciples. And this is what it says in Luke 24. He, Jesus, says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into enter his glory? I love verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. Oh, man, I wouldn't want to be at that Bible study. That would have been a good... I would have liked to sit at that table when they were eating. Everything that the prophets had to say, all that the Moses... Everything that was in the scriptures, oh man, that would I would have liked to be one of those two guys. That would have been awesome. Okay, so we're, we're finishing up chapter 5. What's our takeaway? What do we get from this? What, what value is this portion of John chapter 5 going to be to us on Monday morning? Well, I think a few things. I think it ought to just capture our attention that you know, once again, God's ways are not our ways. They really aren't. And what that means is that we have to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The problem's not on his end. We need to make the adjustments. These were religious professionals who had studied all their lives to recognize the Messiah when he came. And still... They missed him. They missed him because they had filters. They had mental filters. They had emotional filters. They had religious filters. 
They had theological filters. They had spiritual filters. Filters that blinded them to the very manifest presence of Almighty God. Even when he was standing right in front of them. Those are some serious filters. <laughs> filters that ultimately caused them to kill the Savior of the world. Those are really serious filters. And you know what? We'd be foolish to think that we don't have filters as well. Of course we have filters. We all have stuff. We all have history. We all have a journey that we've been on. We've got scars. We've got wounds. We've got pain. We've got good teaching in us. We've got bad teaching in us. Nonetheless, they all become filters. And it makes it harder for us to see God for who he is when he shows up. So how do we avoid the same mistakes of these religious rulers? How do we not become a persecutor of Jesus? How do we not want to kill what he's doing in our midst? How do we not become offended at him? Because that's where it began. Jesus did something on the Sabbath. He messed with their order. He messed with their, with their tradition. He messed with their status quo. It began with offense. ended with death. So how can we avoid those same mistakes? Because I'm thinking I'm capable of doing just what they did. So here's one. Stay humble. As much as you have ability to, stay humble. One practical way to stay humble is to remain teachable. Only the prideful and the arrogant think that they know everything and that there's nothing left for them to learn. There's always something more that we can learn. How can I say that? Because that was me. I was arrogant. I was prideful. Still got my moments. But I can remember as a younger Christian, about 30 years ago, it was around the time, just before my daughter was born, Nadine and I took this discipleship training program. Man, I thought this was the hottest thing in the world. Lasted for two years, this discipleship training program. And I studied, and I journaled, and I passed everything with flying colors. Got A in everything. Memorized 65 Bible verses. I could tell you chapter and verse and, and, and spout them out in a moment's notice. Word perfect. I thought I was hot stuff. I had an answer for everything. At least I thought I did. Not only an answer, I had a chapter and verse to back it up. But I didn't have love. I was only a noisy gong, the clanging symbol. I got to learn the hard way, the truth of 1 Corinthians 18, 1, that says that knowledge puffs up, that love builds up. And I had a good friend who challenged me. After my two-year class, and every time somebody would say something, I would just vomit out another scripture verse. <laughs> my friend Jim looked at me and said, Tom, I remember a time when you knew a whole lot less scripture, but you were a whole lot more loving. Talk about the wounds of a friend being faithful. Stop me in my tracks. It's not enough to have knowledge if we don't have love. We've got to have love. That's the earmark of the presence of Jesus. When you have just knowledge and not love, you know what happens? You become a very angry person. And your brother then is, is seen as your enemy. Right? You guys have done church a long time. You know that that's true. So I believe differently than I did three or two or a decade ago. I do. I really do. 
And I think it's a good thing. I really do hope that some of them old cassette tapes that probably somebody has in a closet somewhere with some message I preached that I thought was just so incredible. I hope they burn them. I hope they make it to a trash dump somewhere. Because <laughs> I just don't believe that stuff anymore. I, I think that's... I think that's humility. I think that's maturity. I don't want... I would be really disappointed in myself if I believed today exactly everything that I believed 30 years ago. I'd be stagnant. I'd be stuck. Because, I mean, at 24, I thought I knew everything about everything. At 54, I'm still trying to learn. It seems like everything is brand new. So how do we get rid of some of our filters? <laughs> we stay humble. We stay teachable. When something is presented to us, and it's new, and it's different, and it rocks our status quo a little bit, maybe, unlike the Pharisees, we can ask, is there something here for me to learn? Could God actually be in this? And at least pause for a moment, without rejecting it out of hand. They did, and they missed God. I don't want to miss him. When he shows up in our midst even if he does it differently than he's ever done it in my life before, or differently than I would, how I would prefer him to do it. So, along those lines, expect God to color outside your preferred lines. Don't you know that he will offend our minds to reveal our hearts? And when he does, because he will, my encouragement is this, yield your way to his way. So stay, stay humble, stay teachable, expect him to color outside your lines. Number three, refuse to violate love. Just make a determination in your heart that you're not going to violate love. That whatever my relationship is, I'm not going to violate love. Man, it'll keep you out of trouble. It'll get you out of trouble. A very wise old man told me once, he said, Tom... When you don't know what to do, and it will be often, <laughs> he said, choose love. So if you find yourself in a situation, you're thinking, I don't know what to do with this. Listen to what the old man told me. Choose love. Refuse to violate love. I am so convinced that it's more important to love than it is to be right. That if being right comes at the expense of love, I've determined the price is too high. I don't want to pay that price. That's a lousy deal. I'm getting ripped off if that's the case. And far too often in the church, we've been willing to sacrifice love. We've been willing to sacrifice friendship. We've been willing to sacrifice relationship because of our perceived rightness. How foolish is that? Man, it started with the Reformation. And 500 years later, 600 years later, we've got 40,000 denominations. We'll split over anything. I want to see that day come to an end. How do we do that? If we value loving one another more than we value our theology, more than we value our doctrine, more than we value our opinion, more, more than we value our understanding of the things of God, our traditions, our rituals, our history, if we value relationship, if we value friendship, if we value love higher than those things, I think we're on the right track. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Didn't he? 
He didn't say, you, they know you're my disciples if your doctrine was perfect or your theology was accurate. He didn't even mention that. What's the earmark? What's, what's the litmus test? I call it a dipstick test. You put the dipstick in there, you take out a reading. What are we measuring? We're measuring love. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Let's love one another. Let's refuse to violate love. Next, another, another tool to help maybe clear up the filters, and this is a practical one. <laughs> Embrace the new covenant of God's grace. Release the old covenant of religious rules and regulations, the laws and traditions of men. We, it's a new day. I, I know too many brothers and sisters, Christians, Christian leaders, Christian members of churches, and they're still living in the old covenant. It's a new day. Jesus came to do a new thing. And, and the difference is, you could see it in this conflict that he has with these Jewish leaders. They want to hold to the letter of the law, and Jesus would rather heal a sick person. Right? They want to kill him, and Jesus' message is to love one another. It's a clear difference between the old and new covenant. In the old covenant, it's all about following the rules and doing the right thing the right way. Otherwise, you'll be harshly punished for it. We don't live in that day anymore. We're under a new covenant. And the earmarks of that covenant are mercy and grace and love. So let go of the old covenant. It doesn't apply to you anymore. You're living by the rules of the game that we're not even playing anymore. So imagine we sit down to play a game of Monopoly and I take out the rules for Pictionary. And suddenly you're figuring out, how come I can't play this game? We're not playing that game anymore. It's a new day. There were new rules. And the rules are this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So embrace the new covenant. Let go of the old. Two more points. Two more ways that we can get rid of filters. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. These guys had the word. It wasn't enough for them. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not optional to the Christian experience. It's essential. It's required. Jesus left it for us. Look, repeatedly in Scripture, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. It is not possible for us to completely understand the truth that's revealed in Scripture without the Spirit of truth. We don't have the mind, we don't have the capacity to grasp it without Him. We need Him. Be filled with the Spirit. Then my last point. Do not be satisfied with information with God. Don't be satisfied with information about God. Cultivate an intimate relationship with God. Don't be content with information when what's offered to you is relationship. That's our Monday morning takeaway. So let's pray. While we stand and pray. Oh God. Oh God. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us? Pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, I want an engine on the track. I want a powerful engine on the track. We thank you for your word. We love your word. We're not satisfied with just letters 
and written words about you. We want you. We want you, Lord. We want your spirit dwelling within us. We want your spirit alive and active in us, around us, on us, because of us. Come and do God-sized things in our midst. Lord, I pray. I pray for myself and for my friends. Make us truly humble. Give us teachable hearts. Give us eyes that see. Eyes that recognize you in our midst. (laughs) Even when you come in ways that are different than our perspective or our preferences. Give us eyes that see. Lord, I could be a Pharisee. (laughs) I could be one of those Jewish leaders. The capacity was in me. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Remove the filters from my eyes. Remove the hardness from my heart and the dullness from my ears. Do that for my friends as well. That we would see. That we'd see what you're doing. That just like you, Jesus, we could say that we do only what we see the Father doing. Let us see what you're doing. And oh God, let love be the earmark. Let love be the gold standard. I pray that we would love one another. That we value love above our opinion. Lord, I pray that we love one another. That we value love for one another above our offenses. That we love one another. Oh God, I pray that Charlottetown Community Church would be known for love. That it would be said about us, to your glory. Oh, that's the place where people really love you. Let that be said of us, oh God. Make it so. I pray that we would love you with all our heart and mind, all our soul, all our strength. And then out of that, the overflow, the abundance of that, the fruit of that, is that we would love one another extravagantly. That mercy would ooze from us, that grace would ooze from us. Make it so, God. Make it so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome day. I look forward to seeing you on Saturday at our our day retreat with Andrew Bryce. Love you love.